It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. A big welcome to everybody to a very special and very different edition of a podcast of one's own. I've got more than one guest and our purpose today is to discuss the Stella Prize. Now you might be asking yourself, what is the Stella Prize? And fortunately, I've got with me the world's biggest expert. I'm referring to the executive director of the Stella Prize, Jacqueline Booten. Jacqueline, what is the Stella Prize? (laughs) The Stella Prize is a major literary award celebrating women's writing. It is awarded annually to an outstanding work by an Australian woman or non-binary writer, and it is a celebration of what women's writing does and what it contributes to our culture. And how long has it been going? The Stella Prize was first awarded in 2013. The activity that got the first Stella Prize up came right back in 2011 and it really was like so much in the feminist space. It came from a group of women working in the literary sector, looking around at what was going on, seeing nicely put gender bias, more aggressively put sexism at play and deciding that they had to fix it and essentially rolling up their sleeves and saying, A prize dedicated just to women will be one way of ensuring that these amazing books are being recognised properly. And took them two years to get that up off the ground, but, yeah, first awarded 2013. There are some very disturbing statistics about the fact that disproportionately it's women who buy books, but still prize winners and high-income earners in the literary world are men, so it's fantastic to have the Stella Prize. Can you just talk to us a little bit about the process? How do you pick a prize winner when there's so many amazing works out there? Yeah, it's not a job I envy. So each year, Stella appoints a panel of five literary experts who together read their way through what can be anywhere between 180 and 230 entries. Eligible entries are books by women and non-binary writers in the calendar year. And unusually in the literary space, the Stella Prize is open to fiction, non-fiction and collections of poetry. So it really is a very wide pool. Look, it's a fascinating process. I have, as a fly on the wall, observed a few of those judges' meetings. And it is like the most um, rigorous and passionate book club you've ever listened in on. They engage with the books in this deep way, both in form and in content. And they go through this, what we call a kind of calibration process. They have to work out what does excellent, original and engaging mean, the criteria by which they're judging, and somehow 
every year they calibrate, they find what it means when they're looking at a year's worth of of stories and themes and they select a long list, then a short list and then a winner. And what does the winner receive apart from, of course, the great honour of being a Stella Prize winner? (laughs) The Stella Prize awards $50,000 in prize money. It is one of the key tenets of of a literary prize is recognising that it's really hard to make a living as a writer. The arts in Australia, as we all know, can be underfunded and is a difficult place in which to make a living. Literature is often the poor cousin of the arts generally. And so even within that small pool, we don't always see as much going to writers as we'd like. And then on top of that, women writers often face the kind of gender pay gap that we see everywhere else in society. So there's research out of Macquarie University and the Australia Council for the Arts a couple of years ago that showed that the average earnings for a writer from their craft in Australia is $13,000. So when we award $50,000 in prize money, we really are trying to say, take this money, do with it, whatever is next for you, whether that's supporting you and your family, working on your next book, use it to further your career. So the most rigorous book club of all time and also the most productive book club of all time, reading (laughs) hundreds of works uh, to ultimately award the Stella Prize. Now, I have with me the winner of the Stella Prize from last year, Evie Wilde, who won it for her wonderful book, Bass Rock, which I'm holding up as I record the podcast. Obviously, listeners can't see that, but I do very strongly recommend the book. Evie, can you tell us what did it feel like to win last year's Stella Prize? It happened just at the point that I think I felt my lowest about my career. So it was really wonderful. It was right in the middle of homeschooling and lockdown and all of that stuff that was going on. So it reminded me to keep writing, which was pretty vital at that moment, I think. And can you give people a flavour of your book for those who haven't read it? Sure. It's got multi-timelines, three main ones, and it's really about the kind of different kinds of violences against women, mental and physical, throughout the years. And I sort of started it with the idea of witch hunting hasn't gone away, it's just changed shape. So that was the basis for the book. I really enjoyed it. It is uh, a book that takes you intriguingly across time, sort of bounded by place, though. Bass Rock, the natural landscape feature you refer to, is sort of almost continuously there as a foreboding presence often in the background. What made you think in this book and, of course, in your other writing that you wanted to give voice to women's stories. Can you give us a sense of the impulse to write like that? I mean, there are a lot of things. One is just having lived for 40 years in a woman's body and and noticing things. But there's an Australian journalist called Sherelle Moody who has a map of Australia with all these pink hearts on it. When you click on a pink heart, you're shown some information on a woman or a child who was found, their their body was found, and she tries to put up as much information about the person and if their killer was prosecuted. And the astounding thing, there are two amazing things. One is how covered Australia is in these pink hearts, and the other is how many of those pink hearts just say unknown female. 
And I think there was something so startling to me about that and had a real feeling that I wanted some of those women to be known, even, you know, even in a sort of fictional sphere that I could sit in the room with them in those moments when they were alone and and then forgotten. You chose in this book, though, not to write in the Australian landscape. Can you talk to us about that decision? I've always previously written about Australia and thought that, because I start with place, I thought that that is just my creative space, you know, nostalgia, my childhood and all that. But the other side of my family is very, very British. And my grandmother and my father died in quite quick succession 10 years ago. And I inherited all of the family photo albums. And there were these pictures of my father as a little kid in like a horrible, like woolen, scratchy swimsuit in front of the Bass Rock. And it's somewhere that I used to go as a kid because we had family there. And I have the same pictures in different fabrics (laughs) in front of the Bass Rock. And there was just this moment of really kind of strange telescoping, like this feeling that the rock had been there watching all this time and will be there into the future. And that just fascinated me. It kind of took me down the route of looking into my grandmother's life. You know, I knew her as a sort of alcoholic, difficult, very stern British woman who said things like, darling, isn't it ghastly? And that was really her. (laughs) She was like a cartoon of a scary English woman and hadn't been a fantastic mother, according to her children. And so when she died, there was this need to discover who she was before she became that person. And the the grandmother that I didn't know that was vivacious and interesting and that I could see from her honeymoon photographs was there. You know, she was kind of a bit saucy and laying on a bed and feeding a giraffe and stuff, which was when I knew her, she was staring at the spot above a television and chain smoking. so. So you've woven together in some senses influences from your own family history from the real world if I can put it like that Mm. and then then taken it and fictionalized it in this incredibly compelling way can I ask you when you're not writing what are you reading well at the moment I'm reading quite a lot of non-fiction and I'm in the middle of Criminal by Angela Kerwin which is all about our prison systems here in the UK and how broken they are and about the men that Angela tried to help she was a prison social worker for 10 years and so it's all about the lives of these men and how impossible her job was and it's one of those books that you feel like when it gets hopefully it gets into the hands of the right people and it could change things so yeah I tend to look at a lot of non-fiction while I'm writing and so can you give us a sneak peek? Is that research for a novel? You're thinking about placing something in a prison in that kind of context? I'm looking at ghosts, really. And I think that prison is such a haunted place. I remember going to um, Fremantle Prison when I was when I was over, when I was a kid, and just the feeling of supernatural heaviness in that place was amazing. 
And can you tell us about your writing process? Do you shut yourself away and bark at family members? You know, <laughs> don't don't disturb me till October. I'm not coming out till then. Or how does it work? <laughs> oh, I wish I wish I could do that. That feels like something men are allowed to do. <laughs> I do the barking. I do the barking, but it just doesn't work. Every book, it's it's changed so wildly. You know, my first book, I was 24 and had no responsibilities and I could just write for, you know, as long as I wanted. And each one has been different. This last one, The Bass Rock, I wrote with a newborn. So that was like an hour a day for as much as I could. And the one I'm writing now is in amongst the new kind of landscape of working from home. So I live in quite a small flat and my husband is often on a Zoom call in the other room and I'm just listening in. So yeah, you kind of have to be be able to change and to adapt. And it does mean things are slower, but as long as I've got coffee, I think I'm okay. So for Virginia Woolf, it was a room of one's own. For you, it's the coffee to feed the writing process. Definitely. (laughs) And as a final question, can you just take us back to that moment of winning the Stella Prize? Where were you? How did you find out? I think I was just heading upstairs to do like dreaded bedtime wrestling (laughs) and feeling like really rough right in the middle of lockdown right in the middle of homeschooling failing to teach my son how to read and yeah I got an email I think and it just felt like the world being turned on its axis a bit it was just like everything's going to be all right for me not for anyone else (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic well thank you for joining this conversation and thank you for your great book too I'm going to go back to Jacqueline now drum roll moment if only I had a a drum kit and b a sense of musical timing but I don't think I'm going to acquire any of those in the next 10 seconds. Jacqueline back to you to announce who is the winner of this year's Stella Prize. Oh what a great piece of news to be able to share. The winner of the 2022 Stella Prize is Evelyn Araluen for Drop Bear. Evelyn, I'm so glad you're with us and congratulations. How does it feel to be the 2022 Stella Prize winner? Thank you. Terrifying. Absolutely just astounding. Nothing has sunk in about any of the news yet. It's it's very exciting to be here and this is just another thing on the list of things that just has not sunk in, haven't processed it yet. And how did you actually find out about the Stella Prize? I'd like to pretend to our listeners this is the first moment you knew, <laughs> but that's not exactly the truth, is it? <laughs> I kind of had been getting, a, like I've been getting a bit of a feeling like this, the Stella team had been like, oh, hey, can we give you a call this sometime this week and I was like oh actually I'm at Adelaide Writers Festival I'm just I'm just here with some other writers and stuff I'm in the green room I can take a phone call right now and they're like oh no no no, don't worry don't worry um let's just wait till you come home so I got home I was exhausted and I'd been traveling around and you know and I work three part-time jobs I look after a dog I, I am ostensibly finishing a degree like I'm I'm not the best at time management. So to just take a phone call that I thought, okay, either this is going to be really incredible news and it's going to change my life forever or they're just trying to be really nice and they want to, you know, tell me over the phone so there's no hard feelings or anything like that. 
yeah, it was just astounding. Definitely some squealing and running around the house. I've dreamed of winning the Stella Prize one day. It really like, you know, I know it's only been around for 10 years, but I haven't been writing for 10 years. So nothing when I was writing Drop Bear, like it was nothing that I thought would be imaginable for this work for me at this time. And so it's just people talk about dreams coming true, but this literally was a dream coming true. I'm going to get you to describe your work, Drop Bear, but before we do it in substance, can you just explain the title? We do have non-Australian listeners to this podcast, so for them, what is a Drop Bear? Oh, well, a Drop Bear is really one of our fiercest and most dangerous um, aspects of the Australian wildlife. You know, it strikes with very sudden and completely unpredictable violence basically, and and should be, you know, should be avoided at all costs. Um, and I'm not clarifying that. In terms of the title, it's definitely thinking about the process of myth-making in Australia and the ways in which we explain to ourselves the things that we find haunting or ghostly or unsettling. And the drop bear is to me really interesting because it's this interrelationship with you know, very invasive colonial idea of what is scary, along with this kind of projection over assumptions about what is actually there, what our native species actually are. So it was to me a really interesting kind of hybridity to think about throughout the collection, you know, what is the kind of the meeting of this haunting spectral quality of the Australian bush that, you know, that combines both the settler colonial and then an actual depiction of what is here and whether or not it wants, you know, it wants to be seen and perceived. So it's also a bit silly and a bit playful. And I hope that the book is a bit silly and a bit playful. I think before we have the Australian Tourism Commission lodging a complaint against the podcast, we should just absolutely clarify, (laughs) uh, no tourists to Australia have ever been lost to a drop bear. You don't have to worry about that, but you should think about the myth of it in the way that Evelyn describes. Now, describe the work for those who obviously won't have seen it yet, but who will be intrigued, what it is, the kind of collection that it is. Yeah, so Drop Bear is a mix of predominantly poetry, but there's also essay, there's prose in it. I was really inspired by a lot of the new experimental poetic work that's coming out from writers like Alison Whitaker or Natalie Harkin. And I felt like the time was appropriate to start breaking the mould and breaking the form a bit with Australian poetry collections. So I've kind of thematized it around the tension between Aboriginalia and Australiana, so national myths and iconography and how they are mobilised by the settler colonial state to constantly create and recreate an idea of itself and then what the impact of that is for Aboriginal people who are being raised between cultures and being raised with this built-in oppositionality to these icons and ideas as settler coloniality. So I was lucky enough to be raised by Aboriginal parents with a really strong sense of cultural identity and spirituality in our culture. And kind of alongside that, I was also raised, you know, with a love of literature. And Australian literature is you know, it hasn't always looked the way that it looks now. There's vibrancy, there's a lot of diversity, and there's some real excellence in the quality of publishing of Aboriginal voices now. But that's been a really long, hard fought for battle. So growing up, I didn't, you know, have access to 
beautifully written and designed children's books telling our stories. I had Snugglepot and Cuddle Pie. I had Blinky Bill. I had I had these narratives that I still think of with a lot of fondness and familiarity, but I'm aware they're not accurate and they're in many instances actually quite racist or violent representations of the country and of the culture that I have been raised into and that I love and, and wish to protect. So these poems and fragments of essay and prose attempt to navigate that, to navigate how we understand things that have shaped us, that have really influenced our aesthetic sensibilities, our kind of nostalgic and fond imaginings of our own childhood, and what responsibility we actually owe to interrogating and unpacking those as we get older and we think more, you know, critically about the kind of people we want to be in the world and the kind of stories that we want to centre and remember. You dedicate in part the book to your mother and father and many parts of it invoke your childhood and their stories, very beautifully done. Can you just tell us a little bit about your family growing up because it's so woven throughout the entire Drop Bear work? Yeah, I am really lucky to be raised from my birth, you know, with a sense of cultural identity from my parents, but they weren't themselves raised with pride and with that sense of their own Aboriginal identity. They are both educators. My mum works in disability support education in Western Sydney and my dad was working on the setting up of the first Aboriginal studies curriculum throughout schools in New South Wales. You know, they're both lifetime members of the Aboriginal Education Consultancy Group. They're really passionate and dedicated people and they know the importance of education and they know what it is to have been withheld from, you know, educational opportunities as well. So growing up, even though that wasn't the life that they had, you know, they didn't have storybooks in the house as kids. They didn't have parents who who could read to them and tell them about country or culture or anything like that. They had to learn that. They had to, you know, work to learn that knowledge later on in life and to be able to stand strong when they had their kids and raise us into that. So I'm endlessly just so proud and in love with them and in love with the work that they've done, not just for me and for my family, but also for the community, being able to go to different community events and such and and know that my parents are, you know, treated with respect and are honoured. And I wanted to be able to honour them as well with this work. It's a delicate thing to try to work with stories that are bigger than you and that are, you know, broader than what you've, you know, personally inherited from them. So even though, you know, I have my own strong sense of cultural identity and spiritual identity through that culture and through participating in the care for country, I am also aware that that was never a given and that they had to work really actively to ensure that we could have those opportunities and that that work never ends. So honouring that and finding a way to talk about that, which is simultaneously very reverent and very humble for all of the work that they've done, while ensuring that at the end of the day, those are their stories and they are not mine to claim they're not mine to reposition in any way other than their own experience and that testimony it's a delicate thing and I think poetry allows for subtlety and for play and experimentation there in a way that is perhaps a bit more naked in fiction and in non-fiction 
it felt like I was at the time with this book where my ability, you know, my skill had finally gotten to a stage where it was ready to address the part of the story that is right for me to talk about. So I'm just really glad that even though I think, you know, they've, they have asked why it doesn't rhyme. So I'm not sure if it's <laughs> quite their favourite kind of poetry, but I, I think they like it. I think they like it. You do throughout Drop Bear tell these stories as you've just described, but it's also right up to the minute. If I can quote one section, you talk about Australia's bushfires and and you write the following, floating at dawn on the North Atlantic Ocean, I walk the length of the deck as the ferry sways beneath me. I wander as if drunk from lounge to shop to cafeteria. A few passengers are watching the TV absentmindedly as the newsreader's accent clips unfamiliar over the names of towns that I've walked barefoot, country I've danced and swum and sung. Here where I've slept in slips of morning light, there where we drove wide nights under a river of stars. She calls it a forest fire and I watch as their mute faces are washed in orange glow. A man leans across the counter where I stand and I want to say, that's my home and it's burning. Do you understand how much is a light that we can't breathe? I watch him watch expressionless before the story changes to the sport and his head tilts, his gaze involved. Can you take us to that moment and some of the contemporary reflections in the book? I mean, there's love in Drop Bear, But there's rage as well. Can you tell us about the rage and how you see contemporary circumstances? I was writing really up until the minute, until like days before everything was kind of finalised and sent off to the printers. I was still constantly updating things because it seemed senseless to be putting together a book that at times does talk about the silly and the playful, sometimes the downright satirical, when we'd just gone through another devastating series of bushfires and we were in the midst of a global pandemic that meant that we never, I think, really got time to talk about the trauma of what had just happened. And, you know, for a brief part of that time, I was on a research trip going to the UK. It was my first trip overseas. It was this very strange experience of going to the UK and going to all of these different universities as part of a conference of other Indigenous speakers to talk about climate change. And we were there to talk about what was specifically happening to our communities and how literature could attend to that, if, if there was any possibility of literature attending to that. And we'd gone, I think, with these aspirations that we would be able to begin some really important conversations about global solidarity And the whole time I was there, you know, me and the other Aboriginal people in that space, it was almost as if we were just these walking ghosts. All of the other communities had already suffered through equal measures of ecological destruction. Nobody was there immune from the violence of climate change and particularly the violence of the settler colonial industrial state. You know, we all knew it. And it was just something about how horrible it was for us at that very time that meant that we just couldn't talk about it you know we really there was there was almost as if there was nothing to say and it took me a long time like it took me I think about six months to even muster up the ability to actually write about 
just the constant terror of waking up to all of these notifications, you know, the fires near me app and everything like that and all of these these conversations with my family about oh, the next evacuation's coming up, okay, what are we taking, what does it look like, that kind of thing and constantly monitoring that, you know, and I was there going to the British Museum and walking through the centre of the colony that has for us it was that you know that's that's the starting point that is the starting point of bringing that environmental destruction the lack of traditional care for our lands and waters that meant that we couldn't stop this it was it had gone too far you know I wrote so many sections of this book trying to answer my own question of you know what is the point of doing this what is the point of trying to speak to something that is of course, deeply personally felt. Of course, I have my own personal attachments to all of this sort of stuff. And I have a right to have a story that involves being weirded out by Blinky Bill as just as much as I have a right to my own traditional stories and the stories of my culture. But is that story worth the paper it's printed on right now when we are in such a state of global crisis and watching that get worse and worse as the pandemic got more and more serious and we realised that these face masks for the smoke are now being repurposed for a virus and just wondering, is it ever going to be time to deal with this? Is it ever going to be time to have the conversation about what we should have been doing decades and decades ago, what they knew we should have been doing? So what came through finally with the book, I think, is my own sense of not despair because despair isn't productive but as you say rage and there's enough energy in rage I think to sustain some real collective action if we think about the responsibility that every industry has to justice whether that be justice to women as you know something like the Stella Prize but also justice to climate justice to the planet justice to the damage that's already been done so I could have easily talked myself out of going on that trip I could have talked myself out of writing this book at all but I do believe I firmly believe that it is the responsibility of every industry whether that be publishing or whether that be you know the opera or or like any every job every profession it should have a place to talk about justice to talk about violence and to talk about what responsibility we have to continue to care for the planet so that we can be there for all of its stories as they unfold. Beautifully put. Thank you. Now, I want you to uh, take us into your world as a writer. When did you first think to yourself, say to yourself that I can write, I should write? How did that all start for you? You know, like like a lot of writers, I think very young. I liked gluing bits of printer paper together and writing terrible little stories about bunny rabbits and all of that kind of stuff. Like I did all of that kid stuff. My parents were so loving and encouraging of it. But writing has always actually been the thing that I always knew that I was good at better than anything else, you know. Like I managed to get into a, a school, gifted and talented program and a school simply on the basis of the fact that while I probably couldn't count, I knew how to write. So I've always known that and I've cared about it immensely, but it never became a possibility really, I think, to actually imagine what I would write about and what that would look like for me 
until I started learning my great-grandfather's language, um, Bundjalung. And, you know, I was going to a TAFE course at night after uni and I was there with other mob and we would be poring over these words and our dictionaries and we would be sounding everything out to each other and we'd be talking about the grammar. And there was just something that shifted so dramatically in my brain when I started to understand the relationship between language and country. And prior to that, I'd been writing stuff that just imitated and really never had a sense of my own heart, my own personality or anything to it. But just it was like something in my brain had just been waiting to be reminded of what of what language could sound like. And since then, I surprised myself and I started writing poetry. I'd never written any poetry before that class or anything like that. I would write terrible long novels that I really hope that nobody ever finds and discovers Um, so I should get a better security system on my laptop to be honest you know I think I became a poet because something about my ancestors language had something to say to me and I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to actually listen to it. And what was your writing process for Drop Bear? How did you do it? It sounds like you've got a very busy life so was it little pockets of time just scraped out here and there? Yeah, I'm not the kind of person who's able to just do one thing and do it in a normal time frame, to be perfectly honest. I really admire those people who regulate themselves and, you know, take themselves off for like a two-week residency and write a novella or something like that. But, you know, I was moving between different jobs and study and I would lug around an entire car full of all of the kids books we'd grown up with and I was just constantly annotating them and and I did a lot of research for Drop Bear as well I wrote a lot in there about settler colonial Australian literature and the history of that literature so there was a lot to unpack and document and it really just started to reach I think an excessive state of just post-it notes everywhere you know, I think my fiancé nearly killed me at some point just because he couldn't walk anywhere in our house without stumbling over a stack of books or anything like that. So very chaotic. I was really lucky. I was so blessed to be able to work on this with many other hands, though. Ellen Van Neuven, who is an incredible Yugamba poet and writer, um, was the editor of the collection. I got a lot of feedback through a mentorship process with the next chapter scheme at the Wheeler Centre. I got to work with Tony Birch for that. So, you know, this is not just like my own work. This is really something that has been cared for and supported with other Aboriginal writers out there who continue to try to work and to advocate for more opportunities. So I'm really just so honoured to be a part of that generation that's had access to those chances it's shaped my process immensely and I know that it can make just such an insane difference for the access I never would have been able to do any of this work if I hadn't actually had an opportunity to be supported by some of those incredible writers and when you're not writing and doing all of the many other things that you do what are you reading At the moment, I've actually been really attempting to try and as much as possible to start reading more Australian women's fiction. I'm trying to write a novel myself, so it's a really good place to start. But yeah, I love Bath Rock and I've just started Amanda Lowry's book, The Labyrinth, which was on the Miles Franklin shortlist last year. And I I think it won, actually. Come to think of it, it did win. Yeah. So I'm loving it so far, honestly. It's just a really exciting time for 
women's fiction. I'm going to go back and start reading some more historical work. I'm excited to read more Christina Stead than I ever did in uni and just start really actually embracing the history of Australian women's writing as much as I possibly can. Well, we'll be very much looking forward to your next work. That's a a delight that's in the future. How long away do you think that is? Any idea of timeline? Well, I told myself at the end of this year and then, you know, I go and win the Stella and they're like, oh, you've got to go and do all of this other stuff. So I think I'll give myself the end to the end of next year, just a bit of just a bit of time to let myself be prodded around and and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, hopefully the end of next year if I don't go and try and start another degree just for fun. <laughs> but the Stella Prize will have you on the road a bit, uh, interviews and public engagements. That's the impression I get, but I'm so happy to do that because I just think this is such a wonderful thing worth advocating for and it's the 10-year anniversary, you know, and, like, it's not just about, you know, what has Stella done so far. It's got a really exciting future ahead of it and, honestly, I'm just really keen to support that. I want more people to know that, you know, if you're interested in writing in Australia, like, you need to get your work out there because there are so many opportunities for it to be read and celebrated and, Women need to write more, really. (laughs) (laughs) Women do need to write more and I absolutely agree with you. We want everybody to know about the Stella Prize, about your work, about Evie's work, about past winners, about those on the long lists and the short lists. Book clubs can draw on all of that for inspiration for the next book to read. Individual readers can too. And certainly for a podcast that is named for Virginia Woolf, what better purpose could there be than celebrating women's writing? So a big thank you, Jacqueline, to you and the Stella Prize team. Evie, thank you for talking about being last year's prize winner. And Evelyn, thank you for talking about your work, Drop Bear, and sharing the joy of being this year's Stella Prize winner. What a great conversation. Thank you so much. been listening to a podcast of one's own with julia gillard from the global institute for women's leadership at king's college london if you want to learn more about our work visit the global institute for women's leadership website and sign up to our updates this podcast has been produced by connie blafari and james miller with king's online with editing by nick hilton if you liked what you've been listening to we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own.